you progressive voices from America's heartland. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa. Before I give you the rundown on today's lineup, let's take a minute to thank some of our local business partners. Uh, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's my grocery store, open seven days a week. The cafe is also open seven days a week for lunch and supper and for breakfast on the weekends. There is limited dine-in service, or you can order using Gateway's takeout service. And also, it's that time of the year to think about Gateway gift cards. For every $50 gift card you buy, you can get an additional $10 gift card. Check it out, folks. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis, offering planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance homes and buildings. Architecture by Synthesis specializes in environmentally friendly designs, including highly insulated structures made from grain bins. That's architecture by synthesis. All right, so uh, on today's program, we'll be talking with Brad Wilson, a uh, guy with a heck of a lot of uh, experience in rural affairs. Uh, we're going to be talking about how Democrats could win if they were smart. We'll also be talking with uh, Charlie Wishman, the, uh, the uh, president of the Iowa Federation of Labor, about the lawsuit filed by labor unions and other like-minded groups against Iowa OSHA over COVID-19. And then Joshua Barr, the director of the Des Moines Civil Rights, Civil and Human Rights Commission is gonna join us. We're gonna talk about oh, various civil rights um, issues relevant to the heartland. And then finally, uh, Kathy Burns will join us. We're gonna talk about the wonderful world of turnips. I'll bet you didn't know that turnips had a wonderful world, but you will by the end of that end of the show. You'll know that. But first, um, let's talk about the U.S. hosting a 2021 climate summit. That's right. You know, it's hard to know exactly how far and how fast Joe Biden's going to move, but um, this much is now certain: the U.S. will play host to a climate summit uh, early next year, early in 2021. Probably, presumably shortly after the uh, inauguration. It'll involve uh, the uh, world's major economies. And, um, you know, one of the key things, of course, that Biden is going to do as president. Uh, on the, he said that on the first day of his presidency, he will rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement, which, as Cory Booker rightfully pointed out during the caucuses, um, rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement is kindergarten when it comes to steps needed to accomplish real climate action. So, okay, good start. Um, but, you know, the there, there was just, um, just this past week, or two weeks ago, I guess, there were leaders from, um, I think, 75 countries around the world uh, met, of course, virtually in the age of corona. Uh, they met virtually in the uh, Climate Ambition Summit. That's what it was called, the Climate Ambition Summit. It was hosted by the uh, UN and also the uh, Great Britain and France. And uh, it marked the fifth anniversary of the Paris Accord. Uh, yeah, and uh, you know, I, I remember that because I, I was there. I, uh, well, I, I arrived at the UN Paris Climate Summit in 2015 just as it was starting. Didn't stay, but uh, that was the tail end of the march that Steve Martin and I did from Omaha Beach to Paris to raise awareness about the importance of that summit. So yeah, it's, uh, it's good that 75 countries met uh, virtually. Of course, uh, the U.S. under the Trump administration was not part of that virtual meeting. 
And um, it was said that the absence of the U.S. underlined the need for more countries, including other major economies such as Brazil, Russia, and Indonesia, to make fresh commitments on tackling the climate crisis. And of course, I would include China in that mix. Um, because as, you know, as, as it has been pointed out, I mean, I'm a huge believer that big climate action is needed by our government, by, I should say by our governments, not just federal, but state and local. But even still, you know, there are, it's got to, it's got to take global action. But uh, I think the best way to initiate global action is for us to do our part. And certainly getting back into the Climate Paris Summit, a Paris Agreement is, uh, is important. So Joe Biden said in a statement, this is in regard to the, uh, the uh, climate summit that the U.S. will host, he said, quote, I'll immediately start working with my counterparts around the world to do all that we possibly can, including by convening the leaders of major economies for a climate summit within my first 100 days in office. We will elevate the incredible work that cities, states, and businesses have been doing to help reduce emissions and build a cleaner future. We'll listen to and engage closely with the activists, including young people, who have continued to sound the alarm and demand change from those in power. Okay, so that's all good. That's all good. And, and I really hope, uh, I mean, Joe Biden has made some pretty serious and um, far-reaching promises on climate. I mean, repeatedly here in Iowa, he said, I have always been against the Dakota Access Pipeline. We don't need that dirty oil coming from North Dakota. He also reminded us of his opposition to Keystone. So I'm, I'm really hoping that within this, this initial window, this, this first 100 days, he not only rejoins the Paris Climate Agreement, not only initiates this, um, this global summit of 75 leading economies, but that he also keeps his promise on these pipelines and that he also takes action on drilling in the Arctic. There's, there's so many things that just need to happen right now and can happen. I mean, shutting down Keystone and Dapple, that's not going to hurt jobs at all. There, there are 15 jobs, that's right, 15 in all of Iowa relevant to the Dakota Access Pipeline. You know, the, the, these, this is not a... a, a you, you could easily take those 15 people and find them, as, as Charles Goldman was saying in, in last week's program, you know, let's put them to work doing um, insulation, uh, weatherization, uh, various types of conservation to help reduce energy use. You know, there's, there's no shortage of those possibilities. And I think Biden gets that. I mean, Biden talked in his campaign here all about, uh, he talked a lot about um, creating uh, millions of new green jobs. So let's do that. And let's be clear, you know, this is not just about, I mean, I, I get reading, again, reading his last statement, reducing emissions and building a cleaner future. That's okay. That's a, that's a good start, but we, it can't just be about reducing emissions. We've got to eliminate, uh, we've got to get to net zero. And I know he's now saying 2050. And I know that when we met with him in Grinnell, uh, Grinnell students uh, kind of uh, rake them over the coals for not being willing to commit to 2030. Uh, and you can find, you can see those videos, by the way, on the boldiowa.com website. So, you know, we've got to do more than just reducing emissions. We've got to do more than just building a cleaner future. I mean, that's pretty nebulous. Again, I, I'm going to take him at his word. One thing Biden said to us on several occasions was, take my word for it. I've never broken my word. 
or I give you my word as a Biden. So we're going to hold him to it. Uh, and, and again, I'm, I remain cautiously optimistic, and I am encouraged that there will be this summit in the U.S. And, um, you know, I, I, here, here's what uh, Antonio, Gutierrez, uh, Antonio Guterres, I think, I think I'm saying it correctly, uh, the U.N. Secretary General, he said, quote, it is a very important signal. He's referring, of course, to the uh, climate summit that Joe Biden promises to host in the U.S. during his first 100 days. He says, quote, Antonio Guterres says, it is a very important signal. We look forward to a very active U.S. leadership in climate action from now on, as U.S. leadership is absolutely essential. The U.S. is the largest economy in the world. It's absolutely essential for our goals to be reached. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I, I like the, um, the subtle jab at the Trump administration. He says, we're looking for a very active U.S. leadership in climate action from now on, <laughs> knowing that there has been none for the past four years. So hopefully, hopefully this will begin what needs to be a very aggressive and very, uh, very proactive effort at ramping up the climate action that we have desperately needed for so long. Uh, and again, part of the problem is we got a hole to dig out of. We've dug, we, well, President Trump has dug us into a hole. You know, and even, I know there are those in his base that are among those who deny climate change, but, you know, the, the more you look at it, the more you got to realize, okay, something is amiss. Something is wrong, and we've got to do something. We've got, we've got to take dramatic steps to address it. Anyway, folks, that's um, that's my uh, that's my rant today on uh, <laughs> on on climate change. Uh, when we come back from a short break, uh, Brad Wilson's going to join us. Uh, we're going to talk about how Democrats could win if they were smart. Uh, Brad is uh, he's worked on farm and rural issues for over thirty five years, including with the family farm movement and the sustainable ag movement, and in the rural caucus of the Iowa Democratic Party. He'll join us when we come back from a short break on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. At East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open Monday through Saturday for dine-in, patio seating, curbside pickup, and carry-out. Hawk also serves fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q table.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you progressive voices from America's heartland. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa. I would like to thank our sponsors, including Story County Veterinary Clinic, 
Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience caring for all creatures, great and small. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page or simply call Dr. Holding at 515-232-8766. Support for this program also provided by Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes on how to turn your yard into dinner. Local food security is becoming more and more important to both urban and rural residents. You can get information at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. All right, Brad Wilson has worked on farm and rural issues for over 35 years, including with the Family Farm Movement and the Sustainable Agricultural Movement, and also as part of the Rural Caucus of the Iowa Democratic Party. Uh, Brad, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you, Ed. Glad to be here. So uh, you're... We had, you, you wrote me a, a very compelling email, and it fit right in with some of the things that are on my mind, uh, I think on a lot of people's minds. Why are Democrats doing so poorly in rural Iowa, beyond that, with working-class voters? And, uh, you know, you wrote specifically, quote, if Democrats can't even win big against Trump, they'll certainly be in trouble next time. I take that, by next time you mean 2022. And... Yeah. I think you're probably right, but <laughs> say more about that, would you? Well, yes. Um, it seems like uh, with all of the flaws of, of Donald Trump, um, you know, from our point of view, uh, it should have been a lot bigger victory than it was. In his, and um, also flaws with regard to rural America, um, and uh, because we had such lower net farm income under Trump, um, that... Yeah, if we if we weren't winning this time, what, what's going to happen next time? Well, I mean, and, and uh, from a Democrat's point of view, again, Joe Biden beating Donald Trump was the one, for the most part, one uh, one silver lining in an otherwise pretty dark electoral cloud. Um, <laughs> you know. Yes. Yeah, Iowa. Uh, I I I've been for a number of elections looking at, you know, how many rural counties were won by the various uh, congressional candidates and, and Senate candidates in Iowa. And, and um, yeah, it's, it's not looking that good. It used to be better. You know, I was involved with the family farm movement during the 1980s farm crisis, you know, and, and it wasn't that bad back then. We, we have a, a lot of history of doing much better. And when I was a, when I, I came in at the, um, I came in at the, be, at the beginning of the Republican ascendancy in 1992, but Prior to that, Democrats controlled the uh, state house for a while, and uh, you had rural Democrats all over the place: Lucas County, uh, Floyd, Mitchell, um, uh, even out west. I mean, all over the state, there were there were Democrats. I mean, the rural Iowa was basically, you know, there were more Republicans there, sure, but it was very divided. There were Democrats and Republicans all over the place, and now yeah, it's pretty yeah, much we, solid red. Yeah, yeah. I've thought about that a lot and um, been trying to work through the rural caucus and uh, also farm organizations on, on, you know, what we can do better to get farm interests understood by anybody that will listen, but also to, for the Democrats, my Democratic hat. Um, so is, get, is, is, the pro is the problem that you've got, um, you've, you've got progressive voices within the party and then you've got an establishment that really uh, doesn't want to rock the, stat rock the status quo boat much at all? Is that is that the real is that the crux of the problem? You know, I'm uh, I look at it a little more specifically, and then it, that does apply to what you've said. But um, 
you know, we had uh, we had this great leader in Tom Harkin, you know, and I actually look at Harkin on the farm bill, and the Harkin Gephardt farm bill, uh, of which had some various names over the years, but um, from the 1980s and 1990s, and you know, it was a farm bill that was much cheaper than the Republican uh, farm bills, and it was also one that made more money, uh, and actually made a profit on farm exports. You know, those are all good arguments to use with independent sin conservatives, you know, why should we lose money on farm exports versus our full costs yeah, as measured by USDA, which we have been used doing most of the time since 1981. And why, you know, and why would we both lose that money and uh, have a big expensive farm, uh, farm program, whereas the, the Harkin approach would eliminate the need, the need for subsidies, and therefore there would be no farm subsidies, uh, because you, you're, you have a price floor. So anyway, yeah, that, was, uh, that was a wonderful thing. Um, but it did not win in Congress. But it was all, besides whether you can win it, uh, you can win the debate with it. You know, even if you, even if you can't get it passed, you can win the debate with it and have a greater share of the world vote. What, what happened, Harkin, uh, when he became Senate Ag Chair, I mean, it seems to me that that's really when it happened. Uh, there was some, uh, some Congress, some senator, I guess, who switched parties or be, you know, from independent to something. I forget exactly who. And then Harkin became uh, chairman of the Ag Committee because the Democrats got in charge. And when he did that, he quit supporting the Harkin-Gebhardt Farm Bill. He quit supporting price floors, and he, had, uh, he did something he had pretty much said he would never do, which is to support a, a Republican-type farm bill, which was in mm. 1996 called Freedom to Farm. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Farm programs. yeah. Quite a name. So, yeah. So anyway, that then we have since then we have, you know, people that are kind of viewed as the Harkin appointees in the Democratic Party that are kind of in the establishment. And they're going along with what Harkin did, even if they didn't in the past. And that's what from what from within the party, I represent those people who are fighting against that to come back and get back to where we have candidates who will stand for. The, the democratic approach to the farm bill that is cheaper eliminates the need for subsidies and makes and does much better for Iowa and for the United States. So let me ask you and this. That, let me ask you this, Brad. The, uh, yeah. the, the, uh, you know, so there were some um, some establishment Democrats in the U.S. Congress uh, tried to blame the Democratic Democrats losses this time on people like Bernie Sanders and AOC. Uh, there was one congresswoman who said, let us never, ever say the word socialism again. Do you think that's part of the problem? Well, yes, I do. I uh, it seems like you could pretty much you could be a lot like Bernie Sanders without calling yourself a socialist. And in fact, Bernie supported uh, a farm bill proposal similar to Harkin Gephardt. So did Elizabeth Warren and some others, including uh, including Kamala Harris. In fact, Joe Biden. I asked him this question. I said, "Did you support the Harkin Gephardt farm bill?" And, you know, he was walking along talking to people, you know, it's like click, 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 click in his brain. And then he came back and he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I supported that, yeah. And I said, well, would you again? He said, well, I might, but I have to look at it again. It's been a long time. Hmm. But it, it's, the potential is there. We have some candidates who are looking at We We've had some who did not win the primaries in Congress here who supported these programs. And Iowa CCI has, has had a candidate survey that has been asking that program, re, that question recently. It's whether do you support a price floor on this. So anyway, um, it, when you have something that is not 
big spending that eliminates the subsidies, that's really, that really takes kind of the life out of the socialist argument, which was your question. You know, they say, aren't you being socialist? No, we're, we're uh, running the farm bill like a business. You know, like businesses do, they manage their supply so they don't lose money. They don't produce so many tractors that you can't sell them. Right. Um, so so it, it really counteracts that argument. And, and so it's just kind of a basic approach. You know, the living wage, is, uh, raising the minimum wage is a similar kind of thing. It's not a government check. It doesn't cost a lot of money. Yeah, and most people, and support, just, most people support that. Uh, and, you know, I mean, yeah. part, part of I mean, One other thing. Yeah. You know, for, like Bernie Sanders and others. A number of them have said, we need to get the big corporation to pay more of their share. But what we did not have is somebody say, and therefore, all you people will have lower taxes. You know, uh, they said, we're going to get the government, like Bernie seemed to be saying, we're going to get the government, the big corporation to pay more, and then we're going to spend it all. Yeah, that that, know, that seems to be the message. Yeah, and, so, and I would think that, to me, that's one reason Republicans have done so well, is they know that people don't like paying taxes. They know that most of us pay too much in taxes, and so they promise tax cuts, even though they don't deliver. I mean, Trump's tax cut was the joke when it comes to its impact on the average voter. Yeah, you know, they, they talked a lot about Trump, uh, you know, really arguing to his base. You know, he's campaigning to his base that is going to vote for him anyway. But I think the progressives in the Democratic Party and many of the Democrats have done the same thing, that they have they have not they have had some some better things for the economy. You know, what uh, was it Clinton or somebody that said it's the economy, stupid. Yeah. To be strong in the economy, such as the farm economy I've been talking about. And um so they could have made the arguments, but they didn't. So do you, you, know? do you, have, any, do you have any hope that, uh, we have just got a couple of minutes left here, do you have any sure. hope that Democrats might figure this out in time to have an impact on the next election? I, I'm, I'm pretty hopeful. You're uh, pretty hopeful? Generally, as a person. Yes. Whether I should be or not, but I just, <laughs> I, and I work on this, this stuff, yeah. But it, it, it's, I bring this up all the time. I'm just doing it today on some uh, comments on the, uh, you know, the, the Rural Caucus on Facebook, Democratic Rural Caucus. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, Brad, I really appreciate you joining us. I know we could talk a long time on this. Uh, uh, I hope to learn sure. more about um, about uh, what a lot of uh, rural Iowans think as I conduct these uh, 52 interviews with Iowa Trump voters. Maybe you've heard about this. Yeah. This is just going to get started oh. uh, in a couple weeks. So, yeah, I mean, I... It just, again, it used to be a very, very different environment in rural America. Now it's pretty solid Republican, and there's a reason why, and, and we have to figure that out. So, hey, uh, Brad, thank you so much for joining us. We've been talking with Brad Wilson, folks. He's a longtime uh, uh, observer and commentator and activist on farm and rural issues, and I uh, really appreciate you visiting with us, Brad. Yes, uh, you're welcome, and thank you. All right, and when, when we come back, folks, uh, Charlie Wishman with the Federation of Labor, Going to join us, we're going to talk about the uh, complaint filed against Iowa OSHA over COVID-19 concerns. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. 
Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas Findlay. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. Noche on Walnut Street, south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Again, Ed Fallon, your host here. We're coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa, providing you the opportunity to hear some progressive voices from America's heartland. Thanks again to our business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store. They're open seven days a week. The cafe is also open seven days a week for lunch and supper and for breakfast on the weekends. Limited dine-in service, or you can order using Gateway's takeout service. And also, it's that time of the year to think about Gateway gift cards. Because for every $50 gift card you buy, you get an additional $10 gift card. Not a bad deal. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Noche Jazz and Cabaret located in downtown Des Moines. Uh, Noche features both national acts and local performers, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Tina Haas Findlay, Nick Leo. Noche also offers a cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. You can catch many of the performances on Noche's live stream. And the owners have done a great job at making sure their setup works in protecting visitors, musicians, and staff during the COVID-19 pandemic. All right. Welcome back to the program. Later in the show, um, Joshua Barr with the Des Moines Human Rights Commission is going to join us. And Kathy Burns, Kathy and I are going to talk about turnips. But first, uh, we want to go to our phone and welcome Charlie Wishman to the program. Charlie's the president of the Iowa Federation of Labor. Um, the Fed, as it's often called, is a coalition of public, private, building trades, and federal sector unions in Iowa. And Charlie's been a member of the International Association of Machinists, a member of AFSME, and the American Federation of Teachers. Uh, Charlie, welcome to the program. Ed, thank you for having me on. All right, so a couple of weeks ago, um, you and uh, the, the Iowa Federation of Labor and several other groups filed a federal complaint against Iowa OSHA, the Occupational Safety Hazardous, uh, I'm blanking on the, uh, on the A, uh, <laughs> because the agency had been um, grossly negligent in protecting Iowa workers uh, during the COVID crisis. And um, the more I learned about that, that uh, complaint, I realized, wow, uh, there have been some bad stuff going on. And you guys speaking up about it was really important and really timely. Well, thank you. You know, uh, look, we, we have realized that there are issues at OSHA for years. Um, but just like so many things, uh, the, the COVID-19 pandemic has really, really uh, pushed out so many issues into the forefront. Uh, that they just can't be ignored anymore. So, you know, this this story begins not in October when, um, or in, excuse me, in, in November when we uh, uh, filed the, uh, the complaint with the federal government to investigate the state OSHA program. We started um, collecting evidence uh, from a whole source, uh, a whole uh, variety of sources um, starting back um, in April when uh, the, the meat packing plant 
um, horror show started. Yeah. And uh, that's that's really when it started because it was very, very clear that OSHA was not uh, following its its own procedures. And, and we, we've got about six complaints that we've complained to the uh, – we filed a complaint to the federal government to come in and audit uh, Iowa OSHA. Um, and uh, we, we hope – our, our goal here is for Iowa OSHA to get better. And so um, let me make sure I understand, too, the, what is the relationship between Iowa OSHA and the federal agency? Yeah, certainly. That's a very, very good question, Ed. Uh, so the, the federal government has uh, an OSHA program. It was one of the things that um, came about, actually, through the Nixon administration. It, it, uh, good old uh, Richard Nixon, eh? Yeah. Good old, <laughs> you know, uh, there was, uh, because of the movements at the time, pushed even a president like uh, Richard Nixon into responding. And, and But it also shows the health and safety of workers is and should not be a partisan issue. Uh, right. Federal OSHA also set up that uh, a state could have its own program. The state can run its own program, but it can't go below what the federal standards are, but it can go above what the federal standards are. Kind of like the minimum are. wage. Yes, yeah. that, that would be a good analogy to it. So, um, but we have uh, identified about six areas where we believe that uh, Iowa OSHA is not doing its job, and uh, there's a lot of room for improvement, and we're asking federal OSHA to come in and do a full investigation of, of those complaints. And so, is, is Iowa OSHA falling down on the job? Is this, is this um, tied to the administration of Governor Reynolds? Is it a longer problem than the current administration, or what, what's your take on that? Sure. So I think some of the issues have been around for a while. Um, when we're talking about, you know, one of our complaints is that, um, you know, uh, Iowa OSHA has too few inspectors to perform on-site health and safety investigations. That's because there's, you know, we've been numerous uh, uh, groups, including ourselves, have been told that there's only three people to inspect for the entire state of Iowa. That's a lot of workplaces and a lot of workers for three cops on the beat. And is, is, is that basically a legislative decision to underfund the amount of workers that should be on, on site? That has been. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, I will give credit to um, uh, legislative Democrats for offering amendments every year to increase the amount of not just wage theft and, and other mm-hmm. inspectors at the Iowa Department of Labor, but also... OSHA inspectors as well. But even beyond that, though, some things really, really came to light, you know, like, for example, in, you know, as, as of October 4th, workers had filed 148 COVID-19 related complaints, alleging dangerous workplace conditions with Iowa OSHA. And only five, five out of those 148 complaints resulted in an on-site inspection. Right. So that's wow. what we're finding is that, unfortunately, um, you know, uh, the, the Iowa OSHA is not even doing on-site inspections when. Yeah. When well, that that's ridiculous. I mean, so with with a new administration coming in into Washington D.C., uh, with presumably Joe Biden being a lot more friendly to uh, to frontline workers than maybe the Trump administration was, are we likely to see? Any kind of um, any kind of punitive action from the federal agency to Iowa OSHA? You know, I, I here here's what I think um, will happen. One one thing I do believe is is going to happen and, and is 
it's long, long overdue, something that President Trump should have done. And I, I believe that um, uh, a pres- currently President-elect Biden, but once he is sworn in, will uh, enact a OSHA standard. Uh, because right now what we have are guidelines, which is basically the equivalent of um, suggestions for employers. I believe that um, the Biden administration is more likely to put a Department of Labor together that's going to actually put standards that all employers have to follow that are going to keep um, and and stop the spread of COVID-19. We yeah. just passed 300,000 deaths in this country. Right. And the thing is that, um, you know, it's for us, and we've been saying this all along, um, and it feels like the Reynolds administration has not been listening, but worker health and safety is community health and safety. Yeah. And some of the things that, that, that have happened that, uh, that you are in, you're referencing in the, in the complaint, I, I mean, the, the the JBS Swift Pork Processing Plant in Marshalltown, uh, I mean, people re- being required to show up for work even if they show signs of having the coronavirus. You know, and, and, and it's not only there that that's happening. That's happening in healthcare facilities and in nursing homes. That's happening in so many. Uh, heck, that's happening in in people's, and that, that's what's happening in our kids' schools right now. Right. Um, that it's, it's completely out of control. And, and this, I think, you know, I'm getting a little bit off topic, but that is also a, a perfect reason why we need to look at paid leave policies in this country, because what we're doing right now is not working. And not only is it not working, it's, it's causing the spread of the virus throughout the entire country because right. the virus didn't stay in the workplace. It goes with you when you go to the grocery store. It goes yeah. with you right. uh, wherever. Yeah. And like you said at the very beginning of this conversation, uh, these, um, you know, COVID is kind of highlighting these concerns, but a lot of these problems, uh, the underlying problems, have been there for a long time. And OSHA, Iowa OSHA has done little to nothing about them. Uh, and some of the working conditions, I mean, the 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 um, the speed of the uh, production line at some of the meatpacking plants is a disaster waiting to happen. I mean, and those disasters do happen, and yep. um, and you know OSHA should be concerned about that as well, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, uh, I believe that you know they slowed down the lines for some period of time, um, but everything you know what. Here, here's definitely one thing that we found out is when, uh, whether it's legislators or the general public or community coalitions that uh, uh, have um, come together around the state, shine light on these issues. If OSHA is not going to do it, uh, working in, in in coalition with other groups, um, the, the, these companies, whatever sector they're in, they they do respond. But sometimes, eventually. When the public isn't looking, when 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 someone's not looking, they're going to change their leave policy back, or they're going to change uh, these other policies uh, that are supposed to be uh, protecting workers. They, they they will jettison them as as soon as they can um, yeah. for the sake of profit. Right, and it's it's going to take strong, vigilant, ongoing pressure to make sure they do the right thing. Yeah, wow. Um, so Charlie, what when do you expect to have a ruling on the complaint? You know, um, we are, we were told, uh, at least the, in, the, in the letter that I have from the United States Department of Labor, that they would be conducting a full review of the, the six areas that we outlined in, 
in in our complaint, and that within 90 days they will be uh, uh, sending us uh, their their findings. Great. Um, well, I, so. I hope I hope they are empathetic because uh, some of the things being described are really really bad. <laughs> Charlie, thank you uh, so much for joining us. Uh, Folks, we've been talking with Charlie Wishman, the president of the Iowa Federation of Labor, about the complaint filed with uh, U.S. OSHA regarding Iowa OSHA ignoring COVID-19 concerns at so many different places in our state. Charlie, thanks so much. Thank you, Ed. Appreciate you having me on. Sure. When we come back from a break, folks, uh, Joshua Barr is going to join us. He is the uh, director of the uh, Des Moines Human Rights Commission. We'll be back in a minute with him on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, if you've got an elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Kim Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. Welcome back to Fallon Forum, where we bring you progressive voices from America's heartland. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa. Support for this program comes from Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. At Hawk, 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Hawk is open Monday through Saturday for dine-in, curbside pickup, and carry-out. More information at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-table.com. Thanks also to Bold Iowa, founded in 2015 to build rural-urban coalitions to address climate change, prevent the abuse of eminent domain, and protect Iowa's soil, air, and water. Bold Iowa is committed to using peaceful, nonviolent means to push for change. More information at boldiowa.com. All right, so welcome back to the program. And again, I'd like to welcome uh, Joshua Barr to the show. He's the uh, civil rights uh, uh, director, Civil and Human Rights Commission director with the, the city of Des Moines. Joshua, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Very glad to be here. Yeah, and early, early this year, you launched, uh, I, 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 I saw the, the production. It was very compelling. It was a, included a video called uh, Breaking Bread, Building Bridges. And it was um, much broader than just the video. There was a, a whole community, a community of people involved in this initiative to kind of see what happens when people actually take time to talk to converse, to try to move beyond their differences. Um, I was very impressed with that. How's that initiative going? Well, you know, now we're in a pandemic, so uh, really trying to uh, see what we can do virtually. But the idea and the goal behind that was what happens when we bring people together and match them up based on their differences. And we did a whole project behind that, uh, which we converted into a documentary, and we won a 2020 
Emmy Award for it in uh, for the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences uh, yeah. in the Midwest chapter. Yeah, I saw one segment. You had a young man who was very anti-police, and he was paired with a woman who was a police officer. Yes, that was and interesting. Matthew yeah, Matthew Beck and uh, Stephanie Schwartz. Um, and again, people can watch this on uh, YouTube. Just type in "Breaking Bread, Building Bridges, Des Moines." But in that one, again, uh, we went through the whole process of. Uh, we reached out to the community and asked them to fill out their survey. We went through a survey, and so we looked at each survey, uh, kind of try to figure out who would be interested, and then we interviewed about 70 people. Uh, and then through those 70, we matched up people uh, and had uh, and, and picked our final 34 uh, who we put together. And we all did it based on their differences. In this case, this person uh, wasn't just anti-police. He had been arrested and been incarcerated uh previously and so uh, he was a he was a marijuana advocate and he was very anti-cop at one point uh so we put him with a cop and he says in the <laughs> documentary you know he thought that you know there was nobody we could match him up with that he would be anti and it was like oh a police officer dang they got me <laughs> what were some of the other matchups um, well, you know, one matchup was a conservative preacher. Uh, we put uh, him with a lesbian, uh, and we had a few matchups where uh, we had persons that were, uh, you know, conservative attorneys, and we put them with the NAACP president for uh, the city of Des Moines. Uh, we had a judge, and we put that uh, person with a with a social justice warrior. Uh, we had a city council member and we, uh, who was an older white female. We put that person with a, a, a younger black male in that person's ward uh, and just to see if they could, you know, it was like a 40-year gap uh, between them. Uh, we, we put a number of uh, persons. We had one person that was, you know, not really big on immigration, and we put that person with a person that was Latino. Was, you know, <laughs> so, so it was just like really taking those differences uh, and putting people up, uh, uh, you know, based so, on, you know, not just color of skin, but, but uh, political ideology, as well as sexual orientation, religion, et cetera. Did, so did any of these matchups not go well? Um, there was one uh, that, was, that didn't go to, I think, you know, and, and I'm just going to be honest. There was this one lady, uh, she's a great person, I, I, I worked with her. But she was a very much a very just, you know, kind of in-your-face uh, advocate of human rights. And instead of actually conversing with the person that they were supposed to have dinner with, they were, like, grilling them. And that's not how this is supposed to go. You're just supposed to be getting to know the person. They're like, what do you stand on this? Or what do you stand on that? Oh, just have a conversation <laughs> and understand this person rather than trying to figure out what's in their head. Get to know them as a, as a human being, and then you'll eventually get the answers anyway. Uh, and, and so um, – and, and the goal really is about evolution, uh, and we're, if and if people who are really striving to be better are always evolving. And you may you may not have an epiphany, but you could evolve through through the process. And um, and so I, I think that was like the only one where uh, she didn't want to continue with the process after the first dinner, uh, and so we put him with somebody else. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. So, do you think you'll continue this after the pandemic is over? Uh, yes. I think, you know, we, we, we try to work from two angles. Number one, we work from the angle of uh, addressing systemic change through policy and, and practices, really addressing uh, we're a country of law and economics, so we're always trying to improve 
uh, laws and policies to improve socioeconomic opportunity, but we're also trying to change uh, hearts and minds. And, and through that changing of hearts and minds, breaking bread, building bridges is a, is a process where people get to know one another and see the human aspect of, of people in their community who may not look like them or think exactly like them, so definitely. Do you think something like this, this kind of approach, could work to um, address some of the conflicts between the, uh, the uh, Des Moines police and the uh, Black Lives Matter movement? Well, I'll say that. I'll say relationships change hearts and minds. And the only way you're really going to bring someone to uh, a better understanding is by building a relationship. It's not going to click from across the street, from across the aisle. And we can't, um, in many of these things, we cannot arrest or protest our way out of the situation. We actually have to engage. And if we're not, if everybody's just in their corner of the ring ready to come out swinging, we aren't going to actually progress collectively as a community. So people have to be willing to engage, have to be willing to talk. And have to be open-minded enough to recognize I may not have all the answers, but I'm here, I'm willing to listen, and I'm willing to grow uh, through this process. And so among the leadership of the uh, Des Moines Police Department and among the the leadership of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, have you seen a willingness to do that? Um, I I mean, again, I'm not in either office. And they go by Black Liberation Movement now. Right, uh, sorry, yeah. So, uh, but, but but... I, I think right now uh, what I've seen just collectively is we, we just live in a very polarized uh, society, and I, and I don't think Des Moines is immune from that. And I think with with that, some somebody's got to step up and say, you know, I may not agree with uh, everything you do, but I'm at least willing to talk with you. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I, I have not yet seen that, but uh, it could be happening. Again, I'm, I don't work at either office, so I, I can't definitely speak on behalf of either one of them. Right, right, of course. And so, I, I mean, I, I'm guessing that, I'm hoping that some of the, 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 the same type of approach is, is perhaps happening in other communities around the country. Do you know of any other places that are attempting these, these kinds of dialogues? Um, uh, well, I, I've, you know, I'm, I'm part of the League of Iowa Human Rights, and so we just had a meeting last week, and, and, and there are some communities that are being more proactive than others at trying to build that dialogue and have that dialogue. Um, so I, I have heard of other communities that are, that are reaching out, but I mean, I think, Ed, if you look at where we are nationally, I don't think, I, I don't see it nationally. I, I think, you know, the rhetoric and, and the polarization of, of 2020 in regards to the election and in regards to uh, just the pandemic and our approach, we're, we're just so far off as a society, yeah. and as a community. I, 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 we, we, we've forgotten that, you know, societies, we have to grow collectively and we have to have these discussions. And I, I don't see it the way I would love to see it, uh, me personally. I, I don't think we're really truly engaging like we should, but that's, well, maybe, uh, maybe the uh, maybe the breaking bread, building bridges uh, documentary. Can I call it a documentary? Uh, yes, yes. Maybe that can uh, catch on around the country. It's uh, it's really I, I can't I I imagine there are people everywhere who have the same concerns that you and I do that they want to see this kind of dialogue occur. And as you probably know, uh, I'm initiate, initiating something very similar to this on a kind of a, a statewide level. Uh, interviewing, having conversations, I should say, with uh, 52 Iowa Trump voters every week this coming year. I'm going to be sitting down with somebody for an hour, mm-hmm. uh, somebody who voted for Donald Trump, and just 
I, I trying to identify common ground. Uh, well, one one concern I have is that sometimes from the political left, you get a lot of a lot of uh, angry uh, dial, dialogue against people who voted for Trump. Uh, because, uh, presuming they're all misogynists, they're all racist, they're all stupid. And I'm, I'm really offended by that personally because I know enough people who voted for Trump who are really good people. And so part of my goal is to, is to begin to diffuse that kind of rhetoric, uh, but also to kind of identify common ground and also to try to figure out what's going on with the Democratic Party, why the Democratic Party seems to have lost a complete connection with rural America. Anyway, it sounds like it's very similar to what you're doing on a, maybe on a more political scale. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we, 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 have, we have to talk our way through this. I mean, we, you know, we cannot arrest, we cannot protest, uh, or only protest our, our way out. We have to engage. If, if we live in a community, I think the thing most people forget is, um, you know, I, I grew up in a family with, you know, my mother, my father, and I had four brothers. I, mean, I had two brothers and two other sisters. And we grew up in the same house. And guess what? We don't all think alike or agree on everything. And uh, the United States of America, for better or worse, is our house. And this house we live in, uh, we may have all grown up in the same house, but we don't think alike. But the question is, how can we uh, be functional and how can we utilize our differences uh, to transcend self and create a better society? And I, I, I think... That's the part that people are forgetting yeah. is like, you know, whether whether we want to accept or not, we have to live here together and yeah. living here together. What are we going to do about it? This isn't I can't divorce my way out of this. You know, yeah. like, you, you, you may, try as you may want to, but somehow, some way you're going to have to interact with people who think or look uh, different from you. You're doing very good work there. I want to, um, again, recommend to folks to check out the uh, work that Joshua Barr with the uh, Des Moines Civil and Human Rights Commission is doing. Uh, check out Breaking Bread, Building Bridges. Um, Joshua, do you like turnips? Um, no, I'm more, no, 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 I'm not a big fan. My grandma would make oh, well, Okay, well, then you definitely need to hear the next segment. Kathy Burns is going to join us. We're going to be talking about the wonderful world of turnips and all you can do with them. Anyway, how's that for a segue? Uh, right, <laughs> Joshua, thank you so much for joining us. Folks, when we come back from a short break, Kathy Burns will be with us, and we are, indeed, going to discuss turnips. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, no-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. They've been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super-insulated structures made from, wait for it, grain bins. Yep, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you progressive voices from America's heartland. 
This is Ed Fallon, your host, broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, thanks to our sponsors, including Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store. It's open seven days a week. And the cafe is also open seven days a week for lunch and supper and on the weekends for breakfast. There's limited dine-in service, so you can also order using Gateway's takeout service. And of course, it's that time of the year. If you're thinking about holiday gifts, you've still got a little time left, right? Uh, they've got a $50 gift card uh, option available at Gateway. You buy a $50 gift card for someone, you get a $10 gift card for yourself on top of that. I know that's a little self-serving, but hey, it's a great deal. Again, check it out, folks. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. All right, thanks for tuning in today, folks. And uh, with us for the final segment of our program, as always, is Kathy Burns. And we are, I believe, going to um, excite you beyond your wildest <laughs> imagination today by talking about turnips, the wonderful world of turnips. Yeah. You had no clue, right? I didn't either. Uh, I actually wasn't that excited about growing turnips the first year that we did. I grew them many years ago and just didn't know what to do with them, so I didn't grow them again. So, Ed, you have really helped well, me appreciate the turnip. Well, and part of it is necessity. You, you, you know, when you find out that it's really easy to grow something, yeah, you want to grow a lot of that, right? <laughs> turnips are really, really easy to grow in the fall. I've never had any luck with them in the spring. You plant them the first week of August, though, or maybe anywhere through the month of August, and you're going to have a crop yep. in October, November. There are so many reasons to plant turnips. Uh, they're actually not, they, they look and act a lot like a potato. A, a lot of people use them in lieu of potatoes. And like for Mr. Turnip Head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that thing, right? We should decorate a turnip yeah. as a Mr. Turnip Head yeah. sometimes. Maybe have, maybe have a standoff between a Mr. Potato Head and a Mr. Turnip Head. That could be fun. A battle to I the I think day. I've digressed. <laughs> I like it, though. But it's it's not related. Uh, you know, a potato is uh, in the um, nightshade. nightshade family. The turnip is actually a cousin of the broccoli, arugula, and kale. So, um, oh, and, I didn't know that. Wow. Well, and you can eat the leaves. That's one reason yes. to grow turnips. Yeah, the greens. You can eat the greens in addition to the root. Most people think of it just as a root vegetable, but you can... You, if you cook them right, you can and eat the, the greens. And the best way to eat the greens, in my opinion, is with bacon fat. <laughs> it is. It does make <laughs> yeah, they're it. Really good. They're really kind good cooked in bacon fat. Kind of like you would do collards. Yeah, yeah. There you uh, go. Because they're pretty tough. They're very hearty. Yeah, and they've, they've got a strongish flavor, but they're really good. We've, we've, we have frozen, I think, a half dozen bags of turnip greens, maybe more. So. Did you blanch those before yeah. you froze them? Yeah, blanch them for three minutes. Uh, you know, Cubed them. And well, chopped them up a little bit. Chopped them up. Blanch them and then put them in cold water and then freeze them. Yeah. So so they store equally well in the freezer. And where are we storing some of our turnips? In addition to the the crisper drawer in a perforated well, bag. Yeah, yes, that, that's really, you know, again, we're not huge fans of plastic. But as I said last week, once you climb up that tree and grab all those Walmart bags out of the tree, those can Target, be too. Target, yeah, who knows. Those can be perforated, and that perforation helps create the ideal hum humidity conditions mm -hmm. for a lot of different root vegetables. We put beets, we store beets that way, carrots, and turnips. Love it. But love turnips it. can also, as Kathy was heading, Ooh. be stored in the ground. Right in the dirt. Yeah. And we've got turnips buried outside through the winter. And then in the, in the late winter, early spring, when we're just, just about out of everything else to eat, we will drag ourselves outside and Ed will dig up turnips. Turn it's not quite that dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they, they store very well in the ground. I mean, of course, if you've got a root cellar. The problem with our basement, as with a lot of basements, it's warm down there. You know, yep. you've got your furnace cooking away, and even if it isn't pumping a lot of heat 
into the basement, there's residual you know, escape, and, and that's going to warm your basement to the point where it's not going to be ideal for root storage. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I really envy the folks who've got a real root cellar. That's just a, that's a dream of mine is to live in a root cellar. Well, maybe not to live in a root cellar, but to create I'll a root cellar. I'll stay in the house. Yeah, we'll, we'll make, a, make a pantry out of one. But in lieu of that, you know, you can dig a hole in the ground. It's a very, mm-hmm. uh, you know, less labor intensive. Line it with straw. Yeah. And um, it works. make a little straw wick so it can gas out. And, but yeah. we probably have enough turnips through, I don't know, June. <laughs> so well, and we'll how are we going to cook these turnips? We'll need them through then because we won't be planting them again till August. after the summer mm. crops. And the reason they make such a great crop also is because they restore some nutrient to the ground after you've done your planting. And you can even, you know, you can broadcast some, some seeds. We've got a plot out there with some, no, is that is that turnips or arugula that we just left to go through the winter? Arugula. Okay. Yeah. I think last year we had some turnips. We did leave some turnips go through. The, well, we left some through the ground last year, and mm-hmm. then some volunteered in the spring. But we like to we do a two crop rotation within one growing season mm-hmm. that works really well. I and mean, we've been doing the same thing for five years, and every year it it works. So it must be must be a good one. It's a garlic again, which we plant in now early November, mm-hmm. and then harvest in July, and then plant the turnips in early August. Oh, it's a great rotation. Yeah. And and they it's in the same plot and they don't seem to it doesn't seem to deplete the soil. They seem to nourish each other in a way. Mm-hmm. They're both yeah. root. It's nice to see your vegetables getting along. I wish Democrats and Republicans could get along as well as turnips and garlic. It's fun because they're both they're both <laughs> vegetables that you can eat the root or the bulb and the top or at yeah. least part of the top. And so, and, and again, the greens are great to eat, but there's so many things you can do with the, the roots. And my new favorite is turnip puff. Turnip oh, puff. Oh, it's been a wonder. It's, um, <laughs> I didn't know turnips could be so delicious. We've been roasting turnips a lot. And roasting turnips is pretty, Those are good. pretty easy like any, any root vegetable. And you can combine it with onion and even apples, apples. Garlic. Um, season it with a little uh, cumin, cinnamon, maybe some thyme, sage. Um, salt and pepper, yeah. or other other root crops even. You know? Yeah, and yeah. just just kind of mix that up a little olive oil, roast that in your in your oven. Um, those are delicious. Uh, but when I found that recipe for turnip puff, it changed our world. <laughs> and it's it's basically, and I'm going to post um, a video on the Birds and Bees Urban Farm website of the process to make turnip puffs. So we'll try to link to that um, sometime when we get that video ready. But it's basically mashed turnips till they're really fluffy with a little butter, a little egg, just not too much egg, some flour, salt, pepper, nutmeg, uh, and breadcrumb topping. And it's just delicious and a beautiful dish. And you can alter it. You can change it up. You can add onion. You can add... You can add turnip. We should add turnip greens into it oh, sometimes. So we have double turnip puff. Double the turnip. You can just doll that up any way you like. And mm. um, it's also exciting to eat turnips because they are so good for you. So um, I didn't know we, that. I just ate them because we had a lot of them. We don't count <laughs> They're actually good for us? We don't count calories. All right. We just eat healthy, <laughs> you and I. But if you're interested, the turnip has about oh i had the calorie count here somewhere now i don't have that but i think i deleted it because i didn't care what the (laughs) calories were they're low in calories but they're high in fiber so a cup of raw turnips um provides 
2.34 grams of fiber and women need about 25 grams of fiber a day and men about 30 to 38 grams. So you're getting a, about a third of mm. your fiber from just a cup of turnips. Yeah, and so one serving really of turnip great. puff and you're on your way to your that's fiber really quota. Good. Um, the, of course, fiber in your diet helps um, your intestines stay nice and healthy. It can help reduce diverticulitis, and, even and, some cancers. And there's also, I mean, turnips, we've also eaten them raw. Uh, I mean, you, you, don't, you don't want to just bite into one like an apple. Maybe some people do. I don't. Oh, we've made um, we, raw, yeah. raw turnip and apple um, salad. Yeah. And there was some other, uh, wasn't there fennel in that as well? Yes. Some fennel from the garden? That was nice. Yeah. But, but uh, you've had raw, you know, either finely sliced or grated turnips. There's so many ways to make a turnip taste good. I'm, there really are. I'm a, I'm a fan. Um, <laughs> well, and, um, you know, that nice high fiber dish in your diet helps you feel full longer. For yeah. those of you who are trying to stretch out um, your time between meals. Now, so my, my early really experience good. with turnips, was, well, there was two different experiences. One, uh, as a kid in uh, New England, my, uh, my non-Irish grandfather would um, cook up. He would, well, he, he, he kind of had, he bought a lot of things. So maybe he was, maybe there was a little bit of Irish in him, too, that we weren't aware of. But he, um, I think the English he would boil, uh, he would boil the potatoes and mash those he would boil the squash mash that and boiled the turnips and mash those and they were they were not my favorite mm. vegetable growing up but uh, I remember in Ireland uh, for some reason they tasted better in Ireland maybe it was the soil maybe it was there they were fresher turnips but um, I also became aware of the history that mm. uh, during uh, Ireland's uh, battle with the uh, the the colonial induced famine you know again in a land as rich as as a, as, as a I mean, naturally rich as, as Ireland. Uh, there's no reason for starvation uh, unless you've got political corruption. But that's another conversation. <laughs> anyway, those when the potatoes went went blight uh, went affected by blight because there was nothing, they they weren't able to grow anything else. And there was no crop rotation and and whatnot. Uh, turnips became uh, an alternative. It wasn't it wasn't enough to, to you know fend off starvation, but turnips were something that uh, people could grow and eat. So something else to remember. Right. Yeah. Um, well, that's an important that's an important part of it, and, and I have an Irish heritage too, and and you know a little bit more about the history of Ireland because you got to spend time in Ireland growing up. But I, you don't think of when you think of Ireland, you think of potatoes, not turnips. But um, uh, turnips are uh, really I don't know. I think I think they should be the the new vogue veggie. They, maybe they should be the veggie, the official veggie of 2021. How about the state veggie of Iowa? <laughs> no, I don't think we're going to We're not going to get Iowa that. Does Iowa have that's, a state veggie? No, it doesn't, actually. That probably wouldn't pass the state legislature anyhow. <laughs> It'd to, probably be corn. Now you have me. <laughs> had to be corn. Corn, corn is actually considered more of a bread, right? Is, is it's it, more of a fuel vegetable? for your car anymore. It, well, that's and another the, show. And the foundation that's of, uh, of high fructose corn syrup. <laughs> Well, Kathy, thanks for joining us today. Uh, I hope you all learned a little bit more about turnips than you ever wanted to know. Uh, thanks also to Brad Wilson, uh, Charlie Wishman, and Joshua Barr for joining us today. And thanks to our production squad of Sherry Hardina and Kathy Burns. Please subscribe to the Fallon Forum on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. And you can also follow the Fallon Forum on Facebook. And you can sign up to get my weekly blog. Just send me a message at edfallonforum.com. Or you can sign up on the website. There's a little sign-up page right there. So, yeah, help us continue to provide uh, the kind of radio programming you won't hear on most commercial stations. Again, thanks for tuning in today, folks. Have a great holiday. We'll be back next week.